Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, we've been talking baseball and personalities, Ted Williams, Ty Cobb, Jimmy Fox, so many others, uh, writers, managers, Hank Greenberg. I now want to get to have you share with us some of your Red Sox memories over the years. These are big moments. Many of them are uh, in my purview as well. Let's start with the impossible dream year. I know we're going to focus on the last two games, but in 1966, before 67, they were in the basement, weren't they? Red Sox were not doing well at all in the mid-60s. See, well, one of the reasons I like talking to you, Jordan, is you oftentimes know more than I do. Oh, about well, them. I just... <laughs> but if you say they're in the basement the previous year... Pinky Higgins was the manager, were. and they were, not, they were not doing well, and they weren't expected to do well. But 67's a magical year. Why don't you talk a little bit about your reflections here? Well, it was a magical year. You know, you know uh, well, I don't think we've talked about Karl Yastrzemski. Now, Karl Yastrzemski played 23 seasons... And he was a really terrific player on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. He played first base, played left field superlatively. He he wasn't a high – well, he won two batting championships. But his lifetime average was like, I don't know, uh, 290 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had way over 3,000 hits, uh, close to 500 home runs. But he ju- And he was very quiet, used to sit in corners – in restaurants facing the wall. Um, he was a little bit strange, still is. Um, but um, he uh, he really was the leader of the team uh, in all those years. And in 1967, he turned from a fairly good power hitter to a great power hitter, won the Triple Crown with 44 home runs and 128 runs batted in. And he was absolutely wonderful. So he was the really key to the 1967 season. Now, in the last two games, uh, Yastrzemski rose to the challenge. They were playing the Minnesota Twins. It was question mark whether they could win those two games and become the American League champion. And I think he went seven for eight in those two games. He won the first first of them with a home run off uh, Minnesota left-hander. I'm trying to think of his name. I forget. Uh, and uh, in the next game, uh, he had a key single of Dean Chance, mm. who was a 20-game winner that mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, he went into the left field corner and threw out uh, a Minnesota player, the very well-known Minnesota player, Bob. Uh, uh, he threw him out of second base trying for a mm. double in a key situation. He was great in those two games. So I'm I'm sitting in the bleachers. When they won. And when they won, the last out was made on a pop fly. Rico. Yeah, to Rico Petroselli, who's another guy that was absolutely wonderful. Mm. I mean, he held the home run championship, the home run record for a shortstop at 40 um, uh, up until the time that um, uh, A-Rod came along. So... You have to say that, and Rico was not only the, he's still around. Um, he's a great family man. He, at that time, probably still, he was very handsome. 
Um, oh, and, yeah. And uh, very nice-looking guy. And his first name, Rico, comes from Americo, which his parents named him. And they, were, uh, they came as uh, uh, immigrants to this right, country. Right. Rico was an understated guy. You know, he, he, never, he never made a—you uh, know, he was very self-contained. But he, was, he had magic hands— you know, he didn't have great range because he wasn't all that fast. But anything he got to, he fielded so beautifully. Gobbled it up. He gobbled it up. And I remember that that last out so vividly, watching it on TV. So you were there in the bleachers. So the question is, when it's pandemonium on the field, according to Ned Martin, the announcer, is Larry running onto the field? <laughs> no, I don't run into the situation. <laughs> I, I took a look at the crowd going out in, on the field, and I said, this is going to be wild all the way down to Fenway Park. I said, I'm getting out of here. Just like when Billy Martin came out of the dugout and looked at me malevolently, and I said, I don't want any problems. Time to split. So right. that okay. time. So I, I went out in the other direction and went home, and I turned on the TV, and they showed all these people what was going on, and I said, good choice, Larry. <laughs> good choice. Uh, so th- those were exciting games, and they had to win both. Right, they Red Sox had to I win both. I think they had to win both. And yeah. then we had to wait for was it Detroit and California to play, and I think uh, Detroit had to lose, or I, I don't remember, but it, it it wasn't over until it was over, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah, and you saw over. Jim Lomborg do his remarkable work as well. Yeah, and in the World Series, Yastrzemski hit I don't know three home runs, two in one game, and you know I like in all every single World Series the Red Sox were in. In the in uh, the last century, uh, late in the century, mm. starting with this one, were seven game series. They were always exciting, which made them more depressing when we find <laughs> out what happens. Let's move to 1975, Game Six of the World Series. Uh, game Sixes have an uh, we have an issue with Game Sixes. <laughs> what do you recall about that one? Well, of course, the major thing you recall is that Carlton Fisk hit that. Terrific line drive to win the game, the one that maybe the most famous home run in baseball history. Yeah, there's a there's a plaque uh, honoring that event at Fenway now, uh, up on the uh, monster seat. So, were you at the game? Oh yeah, with Lois. You and, were there, uh, you know, Lois. late in the game. She said, "Sox are going to lose. Let's get out of here." I said, "Get out of here! What are you crazy? This game is who knows what's going to happen. There's already been was twelve this, terrific plays. Was this before or after the Bernie Carbo home run? Was was she? I'm that, not sure, but, you know, long about that time. Because Bernie oh, Carbo's— just before. Yeah, okay, because I was going to say, Bernie Carbo's home run gave us a life. That was amazing. And who expected Bernie Carbo to do that? I mean, Bernie Carbo was a little bit of a nutcake, but he could hit a, a long ball. Yeah. And when he came up in that situation as a pinch hitter, I remember he hit a couple of fouls off the bottom of his bat that bounced back to the backstop, and uh, all of a sudden, he connects— and I can see the ball in my mind's eye. We were sitting behind the screen, rising out toward center field. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he hit that one. And I went into the center field bleachers, and Bernie Cabo ran about around the bases. And it's not that you couldn't believe it, because this guy could smash the ball. But still, it was a That big... game felt like we won it all, because it was so dramatic. And, and... Yeah, I, it just seemed the Red Sox were going to win the seventh yeah, game. Yeah. And they took a 3 to nothing lead. Um, but in that particular game, I remember a lot of things, and I think we talked about it before. Freddie Lynn hit a three-run homer early in the game, and it made a great attempt in center field where he almost killed himself trying to reach a drive that was off the fence. Louis Tiant 
pitched valiantly mm. for about seven or eight innings in that game. Dwight Evans made that unbelievable catch in right field. Oh, yeah, the basket catch. I yeah, remember the, that. No, no, not the basket. It was the one where it was going to be a home run off the oh, bat of Joe oh, Morgan. and he reached over his shoulder. Was that the one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And then whirled and doubled the guy off first base. Yeah, yeah. And um, Greatest arm. In a, in and George outfield. Foster, was that his name? He yeah. hit a long double that was a key hit, and then later threw out a guy at home plate. They were playing the Big Red Machine, which was the most awesome lineup in yeah, the National Yeah, Pete Rose. League. I mean, they were just killer, that, that team. And um, the the fiscal— Speak to my wife, Lois. Okay. I mean, a million— I've got to speak to uh, A lot of these players have said, that's the best game I ever played in. Yeah, and the, the fisk home run where he's waving the ball fair with his arms— you're behind home plate, you said, behind the screen. Could you see the trajectory? Did you know it was a home run when it left the bat? Well, you know, it wasn't a Bucky Dent home run, a little looping shot. We're going to talk about that in a minute. This was a vicious line drive, and the only question— I didn't see him doing that because I was following the ball uh, until later uh, when I saw it on TV. But um, the only question was whether the ball was going to be fair or foul. There was no question that it was hit over the fence— and it was fair, and it, it ended the game. It, it, it considered, as you say, one of the greatest games of all time in terms of just p- pure baseball. Yeah, a lot of people say that because the, I just listed some of the plays, not all. But, the, you know, there were t- uh, it was a succession of things that happened that made it a great game. All right, I'm going to test your memory. The, the, I think it was George Arm Brewster. And was it Marty Barrett, What that play at home plate, the interference call, was that the year that that happened? Do you remember that? I remember, but I'm Controversial not. play where I think it was Arm Brewster was at the plate and he sort of stood in front of the catcher. Anyway, I remember these things. You're bringing back horrible memories. Well, you're really a, you're really <laughs> a great baseball fan, Jordan. Oh, I, well, definitely in, in terms of Red Sox nation. I, um, but that was a—and then the next night, was it—who was it uh, that gave up the— the winning hit was it Willoughby? I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The fact is, they didn't. Yeah, win they that brought it. I mean, the winning hit was no blast. I mean, I think it was a looping. It was a looping single or something. Yeah, like by yeah. by Joe Morgan, twice MVP. You mentioned Bucky Dent, and as you know, Larry, in Boston, everyone assumes that Bucky's middle name begins with the letter F and ends with K. Bucky <laughs> Effing Dent. Let's talk about '78. You were there too. 78 with Bucky Dent, the no, Yankees, the playoff game? because you see the word Wellfleet. No, what happened? Oh, was, oh, oh, you weren't there. Okay, good. Yeah, you, but that time Lois and I had acquired a house down in Wellfleet. We still go to. It's a great place. And um, so that um, I said to myself, well, you know, we, we were in the habit of going down there. And uh, so I had the the sixth game. Um, this, 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 yeah, this, was, but, uh, this was the playoff game with the Yankees, right? Yeah. So 78, just to refresh everybody, weren't we way ahead and then the Yankees caught up yeah, and, and tied us at the end? Yeah. You're right. Okay. That's right. So anyway, in this game, and, and the guy that was pitching for the Yankees, Ron Guidry, had a record that season of 25-3. and three. He was amazing. The guy, I mean, he was unhittable and didn't give up a home run the whole season to a left-handed batter. So Yastrzemski, being Carl— comes up early in the game and smashes a home run off him to give the Red Sox the lead so that um, it looked like they were going to win that game. 
But anyway, uh, the Yankees kept grinding away, and uh, finally they got uh, Guidry out of there and brought in the the great right-handed relief pitcher for the Yankees. Who am I thinking about? Help me with the name. Well, you're not thinking Sparky Lyle. He was a lefty. No, this was a right-handed guy. Goose Gossage? Yeah. Right. They brought in Goose Gossage, and um, so it came down to a situation— where and you know Jerry Remy was playing for the Red Sox at that time, and there was one play where uh, the Italian named guy for the Yankees who played right field later was a manager. Uh, okay, the Italian uh, uh, Joe, not Joe Torre. Um, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. Keep going. Yeah, right. So that uh, so that. Uh, Jerry hit a line drive to right field. I think he had three hits in that game. And he hit a line drive to right field. And this outfielder, whose name we're searching for, um, who, Lou Pinella. Oh, Lou Pinella. Yeah. Course. So what happened is, <laughs> is that um, Lou couldn't see the you know, the sun was in his eyes. Yeah. But at the last second, he stuck his glove up and there was the ball. You know, it not an out because it already hit the ground. Right. But if it had got by Pinella, it, with Jerry's speed— could have been an inside-the-park home run, at least a triple, and I think one or two guys were on base. So, But anyway, it came down to uh, Gossage, and Yaz comes up with a couple of guys on base, and uh, you say to yourself, he's going to smash one. He, I think he had two hits already in the game, mm. but he popped up. Third base pop-up. Yeah, third base pop-up. And get, getting back to the Bucky Dent thing, no one expected him to be the home run little hitter. little looping ball that, you know, sort of— Pooped a plot. In anybody's ballpark, it's a it's a long out, right? In in most. Not even a long out. I mean, yeah. an out. Who pooped through the pitch? Was it Torres? Mike Torres? Yeah. Former former Yankee. I always thought there was a conspiracy. Did you believe that that the Yankees purposely sent him over to the Red Sox to blow it for us? No. Oh, I'm just messing around with you. You know, I didn't <laughs> believe that. But that was a that was a crushing moment, wasn't it? Oh, but th- there is a conspiracy theory. They they sent over Garrett Whitlock. Is that his name, Garrett Whitlock? Uh huh. Because they knew he would be good, and they wanted to re 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 instigate the the competition. The rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to remember. Was Don Zimmer the manager that year? I believe he was. Yeah, Zim was the manager because he was the one who took all the heat after they lost all those games to the Yankees. They had a like a ten game lead and they blew it. Anyway, there's one more game. Before we get to the good stuff, which is the aughts, which everybody knows the Red Sox have owned this century. But in 1986, you're also in Wellfleet, and it's the Red Sox versus the Mets, and it's got to be the Game 6 that everybody's talking about. Game 6, Game 6. So we invited our next-door neighbors down to Wellfleet. That would be John Caulfield, a very well-known scientist at Harvard at that time who later worked in the pharmaceutical industry. And John Caulfield and I were friends then, and I was best man at his wedding to his second wife, and we've been friends, you know, for the last 40-odd years. <clears throat> and his three kids, and his, his wife, uh, uh, his first wife, who was with us uh, as a guest, uh, Josie or Joanne Caulfield, a real character, unbelievable, still friendly with her. That was a trick, being friendly with both of them when they split because there was some, you know, bad feelings as divorce will bring out. Still in that house next to us, Patrick, one of the kids, lives with his wife and young child of two or three years old. 
and we're still very friendly with the whole family. Had a couple of daughters. One lives in Doha, now married to an Italian airline pilot. And um, Kathleen lives down in, uh, uh, I guess, Maryland. So that afternoon, we had, I don't know how familiar you are with Wellfleet, but Wellfleet is you know, quite beautiful. And there's a place called Great Island, which is part of the National Seashore on the bay side. Have we talked about this stuff? No, not really. I'd like to know more. So that, um, and it was like, you know, Great Island has cliffs, forest, um, hills, beach. And uh, we walked across, and we hiked that day. And some of the beach was almost like quicksand. It was, it was a long day. And uh, when we got back to the house, we were all ready for that sixth game. It looked like the Red Sox were on their way in that sixth game until that moment when the roller went through um, the legs of— uh, Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner. Mookie Wilson. hit. Yeah, Mookie Wilson. Right. And it changed the whole thing around. Well, anyway, John was not a teetotaler, and we had a bottle of champagne. And when it looked like the Red Sox were going to win, he took the dancing around the room with the bottle of champagne. And then uh, when the Red Sox lost, we opened the champagne anyway because what could we do? And we drank the champagne. And John made a very—he was a great baseball fan too, still is. And he made this remark, which is very telling because he thought the Red Sox surely were going to win. He said, now I know what it's like to be a Red Sox fan. And uh, certainly that was the case. I remember— not sleeping that night. Not sleeping the entire night. I was in such shock, you know, and such trauma. But it was, it, and and if our the memory I have is of the the clubhouse in New York for the Red Sox and all that champagne and the in the cases that was chilled and ready to go, and it didn't didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And yet, Larry, let's get your take on this. Uh, we live in a different era now. You've been alive long enough to see them. Not only win in 2004, but to win th- four times in the 20s, in the in the 2100 decade, and it's amazing. It's amazing how far we've come. Well, it's like history repeating itself because the Sox were the big team in America, big major league team in America from 1900 to 1920, and now they're the big team in America from 2000 to 2020. Even this season will live in memory because the Red Sox. They almost pulled off the same thing the 1914 Braves did, you know, the uh, team from no place. Mm. What they call them, the Miracle Braves or something like that? So that um, they almost did it. We can get into my feelings about why they didn't do it, but maybe that's for another time. But uh, I feel um, I feel very gratified the way they've, you know, played lately. I mean, probably— the most amazing comeback in baseball history was in 2004 mm. when they were playing the Yankees for the temp pennant and the Yankees had them down three games and they were smashing the ball all over the ballpark and nobody gave the Red Sox a chance. I mean, who wins a seven-game series when you've lost the three? Uh, especially after 03 when they lost to the Yankees at the end, if you remember, uh, the leaving Pedro in and the whole thing. But, yeah, that was uh, that was probably the most incredible Playoff series I can ever remember. Yeah, what year was was that actually? Uh, 2003. Um, Pedro was in uh, pitching pretty well, but he stayed in too long, and uh, manager left him in. Manager too. left him in too long, and uh, then um, 
Red, the Yankees hit that home run, and uh, Aaron Boone hit the home run, and the rest is history. Yeah, of Tim Wakefield, who's another great guy. Oh, wonderful guy, wonderful guy. Well, these memories are not designed to make people feel the pain anymore. They're actually designed to uh, rejoice in the fact that we've had these great experiences. Like you say, everything in life is a balance. You have the good with the bad, and you appreciate the good when you have the bad. Well, we're talking about the memoir that, you know, this all starts with my 82-year love affair with Fenway Park. I think that these—I mean, we all realize that it's not life exactly because, you know, you're going to live through a loss. Uh, but it is a teacher. I mean, if you care enough about baseball, if you're passionate about baseball and you feel, as you do, obviously, you couldn't sleep that night, and you feel the game as it unfolds, and especially— the Red Sox, who have had wonderful winning years, but they've also had woeful years, even when they were good, losing seven-game series four times. And um, so it is the good and the bad. And if you feel it, it becomes part of you and teaches you something about good things that happen in life and how do you handle bad things that happen in life? Does that make sense? All the sense in the world. Uh, you said it so well, eloquently, and uh, I couldn't agree more. And having you recall these stories adds to the lesson for me because now I remember them and I remember how I felt and why I felt that way. It's nice to reflect many years later. Yeah, I think it is. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.